Hello and welcome to the Eating Disorder Therapist podcast. This is a podcast to help you find peace with food and overcome disordered eating. And I'm Harriet Frew, aka the Eating Disorder Therapist, and I'm so excited to share with you all kinds of stories, tips, information and guest interviews to help you on your journey in finding peace with food. So thank you so much for listening today. Now this episode today is brought to you by the Eating Disorder Therapist Book Club. So if you haven't joined the book club already, do sign up in the show notes and we are currently reading I Can't Stop Eating by Sarah Dosange. If you join the book club, you get four extra podcast episodes a month and access to a supportive Facebook group. And it's only five pounds or the equivalent of seven US dollars to join. So hope to see you there. Now today I have another guest on the show and I am speaking to Dr. Coca Ross, who is board certified in preventative medicine and addiction medicine. She presented a TEDx Pleasant Grove talk on the gifts of intergenerational trauma in January 2020. And she is the author of three books, which are recovery workbooks, including the Food Addiction Recovery Workbook, the Emotional Eating Workbook, and the Binge Eating Disorder and Compulsive Overeating Workbook. And she is a contributing author to the recently released book, Treating Black Women with Eating Disorders, A Clinician's Guide. Now, Dr. Coco Ross came from a family of business entrepreneurs. Her grandfather was a physician who, because of Jim Crow laws, wasn't able to use the local hospital. So he built his own hospital and with her grandmother, started a nursing school to train black nurses. Her mother also was a business owner of multiple businesses. Now, when she went into medicine, Dr. Coco Ross founded three women's centers in San Diego offering general medicine and office gynecology for women. She was then named San Diego Businesswoman of the Year and she later went on to do consulting work at eating disorder treatment facilities where she then founded the Anchor Program and this included developing a line of supplements that were used in her consulting work. The Anchor Program is a 12-week online non-diet approach to treating binge eating, food addiction and emotional eating. The program will help you get to the root cause of your food and body image issues, enabling you to make peace with food and your body. So I'm really looking forward to talking to Dr. Coco Ross today. She has so much expertise, wisdom and knowledge about eating disorders. I'm really looking forward to hearing about her journey and the support and treatment that she pioneers in helping people with healing their relationship with food. Let's get to the interview. Hello, Dr. Coco Ross, and welcome to the Eating Disorder Therapist podcast. Thank you. I'm very excited to be with you today. Oh, thank you so much. So I'd be so pleased. Would you just introduce yourself, please, to the listeners and just tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. I'm a medical doctor, and I specialize in treating eating disorders, addictions, and trauma. I am, you know, an American, obviously, and the oldest of five children in a family that grew up in the, the south of the United States. And I've been in practice for many, many years now. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, thank you so much for sharing. 
And Dr. Coco Ross as well, I realize that she, you come from a family of real entrepreneurs. Is that right? It sounds like lots of sort of innovative people and uh, who have done some quite incredible things in your family. That's absolutely true. I'm very fortunate in, in that way that I have that legacy, really. And mm-hmm. it's, you know, it's always interested me to follow in some of their footsteps and creating some of the things that I've created. I, I feel like I done the best I could. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they sure. And I can imagine with that, actually, maybe it feels like on the one sense, an inspiration, but on the other sense, maybe a pressure as well. That you have An to obligation. <laughs> you, have, you have to live up to those expectations. Yeah, I, I think in particular, my mother's father was, you know, the, an inspiration for many generations because he was a physician in a small town in Texas, but, you know, the only black physician there at the time. And because he couldn't get on the staff of the local white hospital, he built his own hospital. He and his wife trained their own nurses. They started a nursing school. He actually developed a model for treating people who were sharecroppers and other poor black families by using what we now call managed care. In other words, he would charge them like 50 cents per person per month. And for that, he would provide full medical care and dental care and so on. So yeah, he was, he was quite a legend and (laughs) that was a lot to live up to, but I grew up with him and my grandmother and they were, you know, really, I really felt my grandmother was my second mother because she was just such a lovely woman. And I grew up going to, to his small town office after school every day. And I lived with them for two years, every summer working in the mm-hmm. office. And that was my inspiration. He took me on house calls. I saw him deliver a baby. I saw him pronounce somebody who had died. So those are some of my memories that I think led me to go into medicine. Mm. Oh, well, thank you so much for sharing. And it sounds like, yeah, some really like wonderful memories to have and sort of just really inspiring people to have in your early life. Yes, yes. Hi, Dr. Pocoros as well. Did you sort of decide sort of early on in your career to sort of specialize in sort of eating disorders or was it sort of eating disorders and sort of the broader area of mental health and addiction? No, not really. I actually started out doing uh, general medicine mm-hmm. and I actually went back to the town where my grandfather had practiced and practiced there for a number of years in, it's called Bryan College Station in Texas and then ended up doing a residency in in public health and preventive medicine. But no, I actually was mostly seeing just general medicine patients for quite some time. Eventually focused my career on women's medicine, and I developed three women's centers in San Diego, California, that offered general medicine for women and office gynecology. We didn't deliver babies, but we did everything else, but, and we didn't do surgery, obviously. So that's where I actually started becoming interested in eating disorders early in my career. I was offered a medical directorship of an inpatient eating disorder program in San Diego. And that Mm kind of hooked me into, you know, that whole field. And then later I trained in addiction medicine 
and became board certified in addiction medicine. And as I'm, you know, you know that I did a TED talk in January of 2020 on intergenerational trauma. And mm-hmm. I talked about, a little bit about this in my TED talk, which was that so many of my family members are struggling with the same issues, whether it be eating disorders or definitely addictions and other mental health issues. So that's mm-hmm. kind of the second part of what drew me into the field. Mm, okay, no, interesting. So it, so it sounds like, so and were you quite hooked, were you? Once you sort of had that role in eating mm-hmm. disorders, did you find that you were just really drawn into it, really sort of interested you and kind of resonated with you? Yeah, absolutely. I started doing my own program at that time for weight management because that's what you know, I was trained in medical school and most medical doctors still are trained in if someone is living in a larger body, they need to lose weight. And so I never was a diet focused person, but I did try to develop programs that enable people to find their own voice, to change their lifestyle and to, you know, also become more authentically who they were. As time went on, I shifted my focus far, far away from that kind of approach, because I think my patients really taught me that diets really don't work. No matter how good you are at staying on a diet, it's not sustainable. And so pretty quickly on, I think maybe over 20 years ago, I shifted my approach to focusing on working with the trauma that many people with eating disorders Mm -hmm. have. And also, you know, still with lifestyle changes, but not with the focus on weight loss, more the focus on becoming healthier by changing, you know, you can be healthy at any size you are really, really was an advocate of the health at every size model. As soon as it came out, I felt a strong resonance with that. And, and I think, you know, really an kind of an activist desire Mm -hmm. to free women from being so controlled but by this desire to be thin and you know noticing how many of my patients were so unhappy because they were not perfect size and how many women put their lives on hold you know i can't do this i can't find the you know a relationship i can't fill in the blank until i am thin and that really sparked something inside of me too, because I've always been very, you know, I, like I said, I had three women's centers. So I've always been very much into advocating for women in their health. So, mm. yeah, no, sure. And no, thank you for sharing that. And were you working, Dr. Coco Ross, with women who were more struggling with bulimia and binge eating or, or, you know, women who were overweight or was it sort of across the whole spectrum and sort of anorexia as well? Yes, it was across the whole spectrum. In 2002, I went back to do a fellowship with Dr. Andrew Wiles' program in the program in integrative medicine in Tucson, Arizona. And I was worked with them for two years and studied with them for two years. And after that, I obtained a position as the head of an eating disorder program at Sierra Tucson, which is kind of a world-renowned program Mm -hmm. and built that program and really worked with every eating disorder along the spectrum. So from anorexia to bulimia to binge eating disorder and so on. 
Mm-hmm. Okay, so yeah, so right across the spectrum. And it sounds like sort of the program you developed as well, you know, like you say, it sort of started off focusing more on kind of like lifestyle and you, you've always been sort of very anti-diet. But um, as time went on as well, you focused much more on sort of like the trauma and perhaps those deeper psychological issues. Yes, particularly when I worked in the inpatient treatment centers, I really was exposed to how much trauma there is in this arena, both in addictions and in eating disorders. You know, and around that time, the Adverse Childhood Experience Study had come out. And so there was a lot of talk about how that study really shifted perspective, but took a while for people to kind of really get it. But it was shocking to find that, you know, something that could happen to you in childhood, like abuse or neglect, or even witnessing domestic violence in your home, and that whole list of other things could have an impact, not just on your mental health, but on your physical health. And that was a real I think, pivoting point for me to recognize and to actually start screening more for trauma in my eating disorder and addiction patients. Mm, Oh, yeah. And it was so helpful, isn't it? Because I think, you know, the more symptom-based approach, I mean, obviously it has its place as part of treatment, but if those underlying issues aren't addressed, it's very difficult, isn't it? I think to fully heal from an eating disorder or another addiction or a mental health problem. Yeah, I think that's very true. And what we're seeing is, you know, there's such a high relapse rate for eating disorders that, you know, you have to ask yourself, what are we doing wrong? And Mm -hmm. I know many, for many, many generations, patients were being blamed for not doing well. So if you went to a treatment facility and then you relapsed, then it was like, well, you know, it wasn't the fault of the treatment facility, it was your fault, the patient's Mm -hmm. fault. And I think that's a really erroneous assumption. And Mm -hmm. we really need to work harder at providing what these patients need who are seriously ill, and finding better ways of helping them to, to heal. And what one of the things that I found makes the most difference is working with patients on trauma. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. And I'm so, I'm so with you with that. I really am. And could you say a little bit more about with the sort of trauma work, are you using a certain model of therapy or kind of what, what does that sort of look like in terms of what the patient might receive in, within the sort of inpatient unit or, or, or within the treatment centre? Well, you know, when I worked in an inpatient unit, particularly when I worked at Sierra Tucson, they no longer have an eating disorder program, but when when I was there, they did. And they also had a a very strong emphasis on integrative medicine. So I developed probably the first integrative medicine approach to treating eating disorders. And I worked with other providers. We had an acupuncturist, chiropractor, energy healing plus the usual therapist. We had, you know, dietitians and so on. So we had a whole team that worked together and that was very, very successful. We always got comments once patients were, you know, discharged to a lower level of care that our patients were 
farther along in their recovery than maybe some others were. So I think this team approach and this combination of, you know, many, many treatment centers now say they have an integrative medicine model, but they're basically just offering yoga classes, or maybe they're offering art therapy, which is all good. But I was really proactive in truly integrating what the acupuncturist, for example, was seeing in her evaluation with what we were seeing so that you could Mm -hmm. kind of combine, you know, all of the information in a different way. So we would staff the patients together with the integrative providers. Mm -hmm. And I think they learned a lot and we learned a lot and it was all for the good of the patients. Mm. So it sounds like a really sort of personalized approach and truly holistic, I guess, and, and really joined up, which, you know, in a way it makes so much sense, doesn't it? There would be all those things, but so often I think that does get missed, doesn't it, in treatment? Yeah, I think it gets missed because, you know, you know, insurances don't cover a lot of those kinds of things. And so Mm. because of, we don't have national health care in the United States. And I don't even know if insurances cover that in the UK, but certainly in the US, we, people are struggling yeah. to find and pay for health care. And so, you know, sending a daughter or son into treatment can bankrupt a family here and has done on many occasions. So yeah. it was a very unique experience because Sierra Tucson at that time was mostly the treatment center for kind of the rich and famous, you know, so it was movie stars who came, you know, famous singers, famous boxers, you know, we had all kinds of people, but a lot of them were very wealthy so that we didn't have to really worry about, you know, treating them in this way. And unfortunately, as I moved into the different facilities where insurance was the main way or some cash pay, but mostly insurance, it made it very difficult to continue to practice at that high level. Yeah, no, sure. Yeah, no, it's just such a common problem, isn't it? I think in in the UK, we are incredibly fortunate to have our National Health Service. But again, it's kind of limited with resources, and it tends to be the most unwell people that can access that treatment, which often, you know, then still leaves many, many other people that really need and deserve the help but can't access it always. Yeah, that's what I had understood. So I've talked to people in countries that have national health care, but, you know, and so it's basically the same for people who have insurance here. If you're, mm. if you have anorexia, you have to have some medical complication or be severely underweight in order for insurance to pay for extended care or to pay for enough care. So many times, you know, there's like, you can get, you have to get approval for two to three days at a time, which is so time consuming and counterproductive Mm -hmm. really, because we know you're not going to cure anorexia in two days a week, a month, you know? So it's, it's, I think developing and focusing on developing newer models of care is really important. And it's something that I don't see happening a lot. People are just continuing to make money from the Mm -hmm. old model wherever they can. And families are continuing to struggle. And that's why I actually developed the online 
program that I, I have for binge eating and emotional eating and food addiction. The Anchor program is, is a program that I kind of retooled for telemedicine in 2016, and I've been running it ever since as an online program. It's an online non-diet approach that really focuses on, you know, helping people change their lifestyle, of course, but also identifying and processing, working through some of the issues that they've had from childhood adversity. And that's very satisfying for me because, you know, people aren't having to mortgage their homes to pay for, you know, treatment. You know, it's, I don't know if you guys know, but a 30-day stay for eating disorders can run anywhere from thirty to sixty thousand dollars in the in America. Mm. So that's not something yeah. that most middle-class families certainly can easily handle without insurance. You know. Mm. Yeah, for sure. So, can you tell us a bit more about your program? Actually, like, how long does it last, and is it kind of modules, and how how is it presented? Yeah, can you tell us more detail about it, please? Sure. It does work with modules. So what I developed, what I wanted to develop, my goal was to be able to do what I do in my office, but to do it with small groups of women. And not to say that I don't like working with men, I really do. But generally, you know, men are less likely to present for treatment, even in an online program. And so having one man and five women has not worked out to be the best. So I decided to limit it at this point to women until I can get, you know, more men coming in. So it's small groups, five or six women, all of whom have binge eating, emotional eating, food addiction. We start with an intensive, which is really about helping people get start shifting their mindset away from the diet mentality where it's all about, you know, the number on the scale, Mm. you know, using your willpower, gutsing it through all of those kinds of things that really don't work. And we also educate them about the effects of trauma and help them to start to look at those effects and identify them in their own lives and help them get to the root cause of why they have struggled with these problems. Many of them have struggled since they were like five years old. It's kind of shocking what has happened because this massive focus on being thin has Mm -hmm. affected generations of young girls who've been put on diets, who've been bullied, who've been shamed because of their size. And, you know, even by doctors who are, by the way, the number two cause of weight stigma in the United States. So there's a lot of emotional distress that results from all of that, plus the media pressure, peer pressure, et cetera, to be thin. And that has led to women obsessing about food, being desperate being willing to take desperate measures to get then and so on. So my goal was to shift that and enable them to really understand what it takes to be healthy, no matter what mm-hmm. your size is. 
And so the first 12 weeks is an intensive where we're doing a lot of education and working on mindset and working on helping them become aware of the effects of trauma and and so on. And that lasts for 12 weeks. And we meet every week on Zoom and it's the same group of women. So I know that many people do this kind of thing online and they have 25 or 30 people in a group. And I really wanted to do that in-depth work, be able to have more impact. So after the 12 weeks, they go into a six-month program where we meet every two weeks. And there's that part of the program is all about accountability and building a structure to live your life with this new approach. So that, you know, we still do a lot of the emotional work, but there's a bigger focus on, you know, learning. I mean, there's so many women. I, I had a group just on Sunday and some of the participants talked about how they just didn't even know what they were supposed to eat or what to eat or how to put together a meal because they've been dieting their whole lives. And mm-hmm. so we do put a focus on that and on helping them find ways of being more active and so on. So, and after that, we, after the six month program, we then have an alumni group that they can stay in for as long as they want. So the idea is to, you know, give them expert support. I mean, I'm an expert in my field with over 20 years of experience. And I work with two registered dietitians who also are experts in eating disorders. But I think both of them work in treatment facilities and both have private practices. And so they've been doing the work for you know, over a decade each. So we, mm. we have combined you know, 50 plus years of experience it's not the same as going to like a Weight Watchers where you're just talking to a counselor who's been through the program. It's a little different than that. Mm. Okay. Well, no, I mean, I think it just sounds, it just sounds such a valuable program and to have the phased approaches as well of being able to do that kind of deeper intensive work and then progressing more perhaps to kind of, you know, the lifestyle stuff and starting to learn how to kind of, how to eat when you've been dieting for so long but then also having that kind of longer term, like I love the idea that you've got this alumni group as well, because I think it really is an ongoing process, isn't it? When you've been sort of dieting for so many years, just wonderful to have that ongoing support. Exactly. I mean, I was very fortunate when I had my practice in Denver that I worked with the same group of women for five years. And we, you know, we went through this program and, they repeated the program. At that time, it was only like a 12-week program, and we just repeated it, and then I added sessions. But it was the same group of women with these problems for five years, and it really gave me perspective on how long it does take to make permanent changes. I know in preventive medicine, the studies show that it's three to five years to make a permanent lifestyle change, whether it be stopping smoking or you know, changing your eating habits or whatever, lowering your cholesterol, all of those things take time. And I think our diet culture has convinced many people that, oh, no, you can do that in, you know, three months, you know, just go on the fill in the blank fad diet for three months, Mm -hmm. and then your whole life will change. Well, it won't change because the weight is not the problem. The weight The eating issues are the solution to the problem of what happens to women 
growing up who have had some kind of trauma or childhood adversity. So the eating is a survival, you know, strategy or coping strategy for people who've experienced trauma, just as for many people with addictions, the same holds true. So when we focus on, oh, just change your eating or just change the number on the scale, you're really just treating the symptoms instead of treating the real problem. Mm, yeah, no, I'm, I'm so with you. And I think it just by focusing on the number on the scale, just by focusing on the eating, it just sort of perpetuates the problem, doesn't it? And people feel so ashamed that they can't just do it in three months, which of course you know, so understandable if this is like a kind of life raft or a kind of coping strategy, it's going to take a bit of time to be able to work on this. And maybe they can lose weight in three months, but then they Mm -hmm. aren't able to keep it off because they have no way of dealing with those effects of trauma, which causes anxiety, depression. It can, you know, cause a lot of difficulties in just regulating your emotions. And that's one of the triggers for people to binge eat, for example. Yeah, no, I think such a good point. And is your program available to people worldwide or is it just in the United States? No, actually, I've had a number of international people in the program. Obviously, it's all in English, but I've had a lot of people from Canada. I've had people from the UK. I've even had someone from Dubai who was in one of the early groups. So yeah, it is available worldwide. And I love working with people from around the world because it reinforces that, you know, this problem is, it's not an American problem. It's, you know, it's really a global problem, at least for the developed countries, you know, the more wealthy nations, you know, this is an ongoing issue that's often not addressed. And people are continually told, just lose weight, just lose weight. You know, what's your problem? Just lose weight. Why can't you just lose weight? And it's just unfair. And unfortunately, medicine has no tools really that are effective in helping people lose weight. So you're essentially on your own. If that were the solution, you would think that in medicine, we would have developed some ways to help people do that. But I don't think it is the solution. And I just feel sad that so many women have been you know, punished both within their families and within the broader society for being in larger bodies. Mm. Could you say a bit more, and Dr. Coco Ross, about the health at every size model, please? I think, you know, I know quite a lot of the listeners are aware of that, but I just think it'd be really valuable just to hear a bit about that in a bit more detail. Yes, I believe it started in about 2008 or so. Lindo Bacon was one of the originators. And I just, when she came out with her book, Health at Every Size, and I read that book, I just thought, finally, this is what we've been needing. And she started from a point of the science, which I think is really important that she's and her partner, you know, looked over I'm sorry, I should change the gender for her because she has gone through transition. So I'll go back and say Lindo Bacon. And he is the one who went through the research and actually identified the fact that the research was biased 
because it was based on the assumption that, you know, being in a larger body by itself, by its very nature is unhealthy. And we don't really know that, but that's what the scientists, that's what the doctors assumed. And therefore, all of the information that came out of that is really biased. Another person who I think was really pivotal in highlighting this is the woman who wrote the book, Secrets of the Eating Lab, blocking on her name right now. But she is a researcher at a university here in the United States. And she also went through in great detail all of the different, you know, Tracy Mann is her name. And she went through all of the research and analyzed the results. And really, you come away from reading her book realizing that weight is not as big a factor as it's in health as it's been made out to be. There is some small amount of fat in the highest weight range, but it's not as dramatic as you would think or as we've been led to believe. And so when you look at those studies, it begs the question of why are we making such a big deal about this? Why are we ruining you know, little girls' lives, women's lives by telling them this is the only way you can be healthy? And so I think when Lindo came out with her book, it really gave me more impetus to go in that direction 100% and, you know, realize that we really need to take weight off the table and really help women understand how to, you know, live in their bodies, how to get rid of that diet mentality and how to be able to express themselves authentically and learn how to manage the emotions that the emotional dysregulation that's a result of all of the trauma that they've experienced. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think it's so challenging, isn't it? I think just challenging the diet mentality because it's almost like we're sort of indoctrinated with it, aren't we, from birth, really? And often on you know on an unconscious level, it's just become so normal. And I, I, you know, I know, you know, there's such a lot of great work going on these days where people are really challenging it. There's lots of great accounts on social media. You know, I think the tide is slowly, slowly turning, but it's just still got a long way to go, hasn't it? It has a long way to go. And I think particularly given that the medical profession is still promoting weight loss as the only way to be healthy. And That's where it's very, very difficult for someone who goes to their doctor who they trust and want, you know, need help from for whatever reason, and to be told this information as if it's a fact, when in point it's not. And that's, I think, the part that hasn't changed very much. You know, Mm -hmm. there are just still so many physicians who are now on social media talking about there's a new term for what they're doing, which is called healthism, which is basically saying you can't be healthy unless you lose weight. It's no different than the other message, but they're making it all about health now instead of other, you know, other, like you won't be happy or you can't get a man or, you know, you you Mm. won't look good or people won't like you or won't get the job, you you know, all of the other discriminatory practices. Mm. So, And I think that's now starting to, you know, also affect women of color 
As you know, I have a chapter in the book that was released earlier last year called Treating Black Women with Eating Disorders. And it's a seminal book because there's really nothing out there that talks about, you know, the full picture of, of treating women of color who have eating disorders as, and the number of eating disorders is the same, no matter what your color, but black mm-hmm. women have not been getting diagnosed. It's, you know, there are a lot of misconceptions that, and Partially, some of them are true in that in the Black community, there's, there is probably more acceptance of a fuller figure. But I think the more acculturated that Black women are, whether they be from the Caribbean or from Africa or from other places besides the United States, and even in the United States, the more a Black woman identifies with this thin ideal, the more likely they are to have eating disorder issues, serious eating disorder issues. Mm, sure. And so and what are some of the sort of main differences, I guess, in terms of maybe, you know, just addressing and treating eating disorders for black women? You know, are there any sort of, sort of particular issues that really kind of come up? Yeah, I think there are a number of issues and maybe your listeners may not know, but I think one of the biggest issues is the extra burden of race-based trauma that Black women experience on a day-to-day basis. And that has, you know, the other part of that is that most therapists aren't trained in cultural Mm. competence. And so, for example, within treatment centers, there may be conflicts between patients or, you know, between white and Black patients. There may be feeling of lack of understanding of the staff by the patients feeling like they're not understood. But every day a Black woman goes out into the world, she can experience microaggressions and outright racism in any country that she lives in. Mm. I mean, I know it's bad in the United States and, you know, everybody has known what happened after George Floyd's murder, but his murder was sparked protests in 70 countries and on all seven continents. So it's not just here that we have it. And I know I've spoken in Canada and there's a strong resistance to thinking that, you know, Canadians have any racial bias, but you can't help but have racial bias. We're all swimming in it. If you've been either a colonizer or you've been, or you live in a country that has been colonized, those beliefs came to the fore and particularly in countries where slavery existed and obviously the United States and Caribbean and so on. The United States had probably the longest stint of slavery. And then after the post-slavery era was ripe with what we call the Jim Crow laws, which were anti-black laws, racist laws. You can't drink at this fountain, water fountain. You can't sit anywhere on the bus, you have to sit in the back of the bus. You can't go to school with white children. You can only go to black schools. And I grew up, you know, that was still existing when I grew up. Mm -hmm. So that has continued. And obviously more so, you know, it's been highlighted. The use of the police back to slave days is where that started. And this notion that you know, black men are dangerous, even if they're only 14 or 12 or, 
you know, young mm. as many of them have, and even if they haven't done anything wrong. And we see that police bias in numerous countries. I've researched it in the UK. I've looked at it in Canada and obviously mm. in the United States that Black men are more likely to be incarcerated for the same crimes that whites commit and so on. So I think you can't, if you're a white therapist, mm. you really have to educate yourself about the issues that your Black patients may be facing. Mm. And also to recognize that, you know, the African diaspora is very diverse. You, you know, you yeah. have many people in the UK from, I don't know, where most of the Black people come from in the UK, you have to tell me. But Oh, maybe. gosh, you know, I think even Africa, mm-hmm. probably the same as here. Because mm-hmm. I know we have, you know, we have Afro-Caribbeans, we have Caribbeans who are Black and Brown, mm-hmm. we have Puerto Ricans, we, you know, it's, et cetera. So we have a lot of both Latinx and black diaspora is, is very diverse. And so you can't assume, I mean, most people look at me and don't think I'm black and yet I am. And I experienced Mm -hmm. a lot of that same kind of racial trauma growing up and that I talked about in the Mm -hmm. TEDx talk that I did, TEDx Pleasant Grove talk that I did. Mm. What's the name of the book, Dr. Coco Ross, if people want to get hold of the book? I believe it's called Treating Black Women with Eating Disorders. Mm-hmm. Okay, because I'll definitely make sure that we put that in the show notes, because I'm sure okay. there'll be a lot of people that will be interested to read more about that. And could you just say as well a little bit, as you, you know, you've mentioned your TED Talk a couple of times, but could you just say a little bit more about that as well? Because I think it sounds really, really interesting. Yes. The TED Talk is about intergenerational trauma. And I was like, I wanted to do that TED Talk to talk about how trauma can be passed from one generation to another in families and how important it is for families, not just individuals, but family systems to recognize the trauma that maybe granddad had in the war, in Vietnam War, or dad had going to Afghanistan. And, you know, there's all sorts of trauma, including, you know, maybe granddad had alcohol use disorder. And then hit the effect of that was he was very, he was a, a raging alcoholic. And that affected his children. And then they were, they passed that effect on to their children. So, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot more studies now on intergenerational trauma. It started back in the 1960s with looking at the offspring of Holocaust survivors and how high their PTSD risk if, was if their parents had been also diagnosed with PTSD. And there were a lot of other characteristics that were being identified in offspring of Holocaust mm-hmm. survivors who themselves didn't experience trauma, and many of them lived in families where the Holocaust was never talked about, and yet and still they had these trauma effects. So, you know, in my own family, as I mentioned earlier, and when I did a family tree, you know, we can trace our roots back to slavery on my mother's side and back to, you know, a free slave historic colonies or communities on my dad's side, because he was from the North. 
And then you, you start to notice, you know, the drug addiction, the mental illness, the suicides, the people who have eating disorders. And in every generation, we have, we have lost at least one child to mm-hmm. mental illness or to addiction or to one of those other things I mentioned. And it just became very evident to me over time that, you know, that these traumas were intergenerational. And I started working within my own family to help them become more aware of that and to help them, you know, in parenting their children and me and parenting my children to get help for some of the things that we were seeing to see if we could, you know, interrupt this intergenerational trend. Mm, Gosh, I mean, so fascinating, isn't it? And I think just how helpful to have that broader insight into that intergenerational trauma, because I think, yeah, we do often so treat, often treat the person, don't we, in isolation, not taking into account all the history. Yeah, and I think, Dr. Kogos, I'm just amazed, actually, as well, by how much you've obviously done so much work out in the world, but also you have brought that back within your own family. And I think as well that that can be incredibly challenging work, I think, sometimes, can't it? Bring it home. Believe me, when when I sent out the Adverse Childhood Experiences quiz to my nieces and nephews, I'm I'm sure many, many of them were like, oh, my God, here we go with Aunt Pat again, you know. (laughs) But, you know, you can only do what you can do. And the ones who have been interested, you know, I've continued to stay in contact with and have conversations with. And it's just about opening the conversation up if nothing more happens at least people are becoming more aware for sure Mm, yeah that's very true so dr kokoros do you have anything sort of coming up that you wanted to promote or mention or you know any other exciting developments in the pipeline well i've been doing a lot more anti-racism consulting work particularly with treatment centers but also with other mental health facilities and even the public defenders in one city in Arizona and so on. So the consulting work is kind of came out of the protest of the previous year and out of my speaking that I've been doing for like four or five years on treating black women with eating disorders. And so that's something I'm really excited about. The anchor program I mentioned to you, I'm really continue to get so much satisfaction and to feel it's such a, you know, valuable program for people to be involved in. And other than that, I have, I am offering for podcast listeners a free copy of my book, The Food Addiction Recovery Workbook. So Mm -hmm. I can, I'd be happy to provide that link for you. And we are shipping internationally. I pay for the book, but you have to pay for the shipping. So just, I mean, we found the shipping is fairly reasonable in to Europe and the EU and the UK. A little bit harder to do shipping to, we found to Australia, for example, because of some of the rules that they put into place now. But those are the things coming up for me. I speak at conferences all over the world and continue to love to do, do that virtually now because mm-hmm. of COVID yeah. and to be on podcasts like this one. Mm, okay, well, wonderful. Thank you. Well, I'm sure lots of people will be interested in the book. That's just a real gift. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, 
And where can people, if they want to find more about the Anchor Programme or just about you in general, where are the best places to find you sort of on the web? Yeah, the best place is at my website, carolynrossmd.com. That's C-A-R-O-L-Y-N-R-O-S-S-M-D.com. There's my podcast on there. There's information about the Anchor Programme. You can see my TEDx talk there. So pretty much everything is there. The Anchor Program also has a separate, more detailed website, and that's just anchorprogram.com. Okay, lovely. Well, I'll make sure all those details go in the show notes. Okay. I just want to thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. I think so many just really interesting topics and points of discussion, and you know, it's just such valuable content for the listeners. So thank you very much. You're very welcome, Harry. It's been a pleasure to talk with you today. So I hope you enjoyed this conversation just as much as I did. Do go and check out all of Dr. Kokoros's details in the show notes. If you're not following me already, do seek me out on Instagram at The Eating Disorder Therapist. And for further support with your relationship with food, do go to theeatingdisordertherapist.co.uk. If you'd like to join the book club, details are in the show notes. If you click on the link, it will take you through. And if you enjoyed this episode, I'd be so grateful if you'd follow, rate and review as it helps it reach so many more listeners. Thank you so much for listening today and I look forward to sharing another podcast episode with you very soon. Mm -hmm.